Well, good morning. That's kind of amazing, isn't it? Like that stuff has always fascinated me. Like how how a pick. So this guy, his name's Apollo Robbins. Apollo Robbins. Um, he's called the greatest pickpocket in the world. I don't know how you get that title. He probably gave it to himself, but he's pretty impressive, right? Like, I don't know. I watch a video probably six times, like trying to figure out how he does it, you know, how he uses sleight of hand and, and misdirection and distraction to like to get what he wants, right? It's amazing how much we don't recognize when our focus is somewhere else, you know? Like if my focus is here, I don't think or recognize what's going on over here. Uh, amazing. So this guy, what he does is he says he studies the quirks of human behavior to, to kind of do what he does, to kind of get what he wants as a, as a pickpocket. But he said, so this is, this is a TED talk by him. He said um, a few things. This is, I don't know, maybe a 10 minute video that we, I just took part of it. Um, there's a couple things that he said earlier in the video and one that he said at the end that I thought was so interesting. He said, what has our attention, think about this, what has our attention shapes our reality. What has our attention shapes our reality. And I thought that's a really interesting statement. And I think it's a very true statement. At the end, he kind of ends it with this question. He said, if somebody could control, if you could control somebody's attention, what would you do with it? If you could, if, so, so like, get the picture. Um, somebody's attention, your attention shapes your reality. If you could control their attention, hence shape their reality, what would you do with it? That's an interesting thought, right? We um, started a series a couple weeks ago that we're continuing this morning called Deception. And I want to say this, if you're, if you're a guest or, or maybe you're visiting with us or newer to the church, um, this is not the kind of series that we do very regularly. In fact, this is this is the first time, we're about a three-year-old campus, and so this is the first time that we've done a series this way. But what we're doing is we're looking at um, what the Bible calls um, the deceiver, the, uh, the father of lies. We're looking at Satan and kind of talking about the, uh, the spiritual forces of darkness in our world and you know, ways in which Satan um, works and, and then like how are you and I to respond the Bible says that he's our enemy. We have this common enemy. It equates him to a lion. He's like a roaring lion looking to devour us. And so we thought, you know, we should have a discussion about this and talk about like how, if we have this enemy who's like a lion looking to devour us, how should we respond? And so that's what we've been doing each week is kind of digging in to a little bit of that. And it's been interesting how many questions people have had throughout this series. Like there's a lot of, there's a lot of lies that we believe about Satan and demonic things and all of that. And so we've been digging into it a little bit throughout this series. And I was, I was watching that video this week and I was thinking about our series and I thought, you know what? That's exactly like what, what this Apollo Robbins does as a pickpocket and how he uses distraction and diversion and misdirection is very much what Satan tries to do in our lives as well. He tries to get our attention, to hold our attention to be able to, to uh, you know, misdirect us and distract us so that then he can shape our reality and then we would do what he desires instead of what God desires. And so this week, that's, that's where I want to go. I want to talk about um, the ways in which Satan works that are kind of focused on distraction in our lives, how he looks to gain our attention 
by using distraction so that he can shape our reality and that the way that we live is more in line with what he desires rather than what our Father desires. So I want to jump right into it. So if you've got a Bible, grab it, please. Flip it open to Matthew chapter 4. By the way, um, we have an app as well, the Grace Church app. You can click on that. There's a little Bible tab in there as well. So Matthew is the first book in the second part of our Bible. The second part of our Bible is the New Testament. So it's the first book in the New Testament. And the Gospels, if you're, if you're unfamiliar with um, the Bible, the Gospels kind of, there's four of them. They kind of tell the story of Jesus' birth, his life, his ministry, and his death. And so you have four of them, four different people, all telling the same story from slightly different perspectives, okay? And so this one is in Matthew chapter 4, so where we're going to be, we're going to start in verse 1. I want to give you a little bit of background, kind of what's happening as we're jumping into this passage. So, so this is the beginning of Jesus' public ministry. So the first part of Matthew kind of talks about his birth and, and all of that. And this is um, the beginning of his public ministry. So this is the point at which Jesus um, goes out to preach and teach and perform miracles and heal people and tell people about the kingdom of God. And so it's kind of, I think of it this way, it's kind of the beginning of his journey to the cross, right? The beginning of his public ministry. And so where we pick up in chapter four is right after chapter three. In chapter three, um, Jesus is baptized. And so the beginning of his public ministry is to be baptized by his cousin, actually, a guy named John the Baptist. And so after he's baptized, it's interesting, it says the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit calls him out into the desert, out into the wilderness, okay? And so he goes out into the desert, this is where we're going to jump in, he goes out to the desert, and as he's out there, he has this confrontation with the enemy, with the devil. And that's where our story picks up. So check it out, Matthew chapter 4, starting in verse 1. It says, then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil, after fasting for 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. That's like the understatement of the year, right? The, the, the tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him up to the holy city, and he had him stand on the highest point of the temple. He said, If you're the Son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, he'll command his angels concerning you, and they'll lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered, it is also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain, and he showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. He said, all this I will give you if you will bow down and worship me. Jesus said to him, away from me, Satan. For it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him and angels came and attended him. So that's the passage I want to look at. Different, di kind of a strange sort of passage, right? So Jesus is called out by the Holy Spirit into the desert, into the wilderness to have this confrontation with the devil. So, that, so we looked at the Matthew version. Um, Luke and Mark also talk about this in their gospels as well. And I think as we look at it, um, as we dig into it here, there's some interesting things that we could pull from it in the ways that the devil works in our world in general, but also in our lives specifically. 
I'll tell you, as an aside, I'll tell you what is a really interesting study. Um, so this isn't the first time in the Bible that we have this temptation that Satan does um, with, with somebody. There's actually a time at the very beginning of our Bibles that Satan tempts two people. You know who it is? Adam and Eve, right? It is a fascinating study. If you're looking to kind of dig into this a little bit more, I'd encourage you to check out Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3 is Satan's temptation of Adam and Eve. Compare, contrast that with this passage that we just read. It is fascinating. I read an article about it this week, a guy named uh, Alan Ross, Dr. Alan Ross. And he's, and he's talking about the different parallels and contrasts to the way that Adam and Eve responded to temptation as regular human beings like you and me and the way that Jesus responded to temptation. So if you're interested in digging into that a little bit more, I'd encourage you to check that out. as Genesis chapter 3. Back to our text. The passage is pretty easy to follow, right? Like the passage we just read, it's, it's, it's pretty straightforward. What happens? Well, the Holy Spirit, it says, leads Jesus out into the desert or leads him into the wilderness. Maybe some of your, this translation said wilderness. Maybe some of yours says desert. It's this uninhabited desolate place. And when you look at that word that's translated as wilderness or devil in our, in our Bibles, um, it has this, this um, idea of aloneness as well. And so he's, he's out in this place where there's no one else. This is the Holy Spirit calls him out into this place where there's no one else, this desert wilderness, right? And as he's out there, he's fasting for 40 days, 40 days and 40 nights. And as he's fasting, it doesn't say this in the text, but we can assume this. As he's fasting, fasting we assume he's also praying. So those, those kind of go hand in hand, fasting and prayer. And so he's out in the desert, he's fasting and praying for 40 days. And it says at the end of that 40 days, he's hungry. And I read that every time I read it, I want to chuckle because I think I'm like ravenous every morning when I wake up after having not eaten for 10 hours. I can't imagine not eating for 40 days, right? And so he's 40 days into this. He's been fasting that whole time. He's hungry. He's in the wilderness. And it's at that point, and I think, this is, I think there's something we can get from this too. At that point of physical weakness, that's when Satan strikes, right? Which I think is often the case in our lives. We, in, in our lives, when we're at a point of weakness, what happens when temptation comes in? Many times we can give in to it, right? And so the enemy knows that. And so it's at this point of physical weakness, Satan comes and he tempts Jesus in three different ways. And Jesus responds to those three different temptations with three different responses. So here's the first one. The devil says, if you are the son of God, tell these stones to become bread. If you're the son of God, tell these stones to become bread. So uh, without getting too much in the weeds here, this, is, this statement, um, the devil uses it twice, two of the three temptations. This is, this is called a conditional statement, a conditional sentence, right? If you're an English teacher, you know all about this. If you're not, maybe you don't care, but it's actually important. It's one of those things, if this is true, then this is true right? And so we can look at that statement and it almost sounds like, if you read it like I do, it almost sounds like Satan's trying to find out if Jesus is really the son of God. Well, if you're the son of God, you should be able to tell these stones to become bread. Do it. Let's find out if you're really him. 
But that's actually not the meaning of this sentence. That's not the meaning. If you were a Greek scholar and you were reading this, it would be very clear from the structure of this sentence that he's not trying to say, the devil's not trying to find out if Jesus is God the Son, if he's the Son of God, and then you know, prove it to me by turning these stones into bread. That's not what he's doing. The, the, state, the statement could be maybe better translated this way. Since you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. So he's not saying it in a way like, I'm not sure if you really are. Satan knows who Jesus is. We need to be clear about that. He knows that he's the son of God. And so this first temptation is not about that. Jesus responds to the temptation. He says, it's written, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. And so Jesus declines the temptation. He declines Satan's invitation to take these stones and turn them into bread. He actually quotes scripture when he does it, which I think is another thing that we could learn from this, right? When we're facing temptation, having scripture, the Bible that we know, that we, that's like part, that's in our heart, that's part of us, is really, really valuable. And so he responds back and he quotes Deuteronomy 8.3. Deuteronomy 8.3 is man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. So he rejects the temptation, right? The first one. So Satan tries another tactic. He takes Jesus somehow, and again, I don't know how he does this. I don't know how he does it. But somehow he like physically transports Jesus to Jerusalem, to the temple, to the highest point on the temple, right? And then he actually, if you didn't like dig into this, you wouldn't know this. He actually, in the second temptation, quotes scripture to Jesus. So Jesus responds to the first temptation by quoting scripture to him. Satan learns, he's no dummy, right? And so he quotes scripture to Jesus and he says, if you're the son of God, throw yourself down for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you and they'll lift you up in their hands so that you'll not strike your foot against a stone. This is part of Psalm 91. This is part of verses 11, 12 from Psalm 91. However, what he does is he twists it a little bit. Satan twists the meaning of it, which, remember, if you were here last week, we talked a little bit about that. We talked about the way that Satan, we, we said two truths and a lie, right? This is how Satan works. He tells a little bit of truth. Here's scripture, Jesus, but he twists it. He sneaks the lies in there. That's kind of how he works. Well, Jesus, of course, recognizes that immediately. He recognizes what Satan's doing, and he responds back to him with Scripture again, this time with Deuteronomy 6.16. So he says, it is also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. And so Jesus declines the second temptation, right? He stays strong. He stays focused. So finally, Satan tries to tempt him a third time. This time, he takes him to a different place. So again, I don't know how he does it. But he physically transports him to this super high mountain where he can see all the kingdoms of the world. He's got him up there and he says to him, this can all be yours. This can all be yours. And again, I challenge you to remember what we've talked about over the last couple of weeks. What, what does the Bible call Satan? The ruler of this world or the God of this world, lowercase g, God of this world. That's actually what the Bible describes him. That's a title of Satan that the Bible gives to God. He's the God of this world. What does that mean? He's got significant influence. He's got significant control, right? And so when he says to Jesus, this can all be yours, he literally says, it is written, uh, where is it? He says, all this I will give you if you will bow down and worship me. That's the next one third temptation. All this I will give you if you bow down and worship me. And at first maybe you hear that and you're like, can he really do that? He can do that. 
He's got the power to do that. And Jesus knows that. Jesus responds to him and he says, away from me, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. So again, this is another scripture. This is Deuteronomy 6.13 this time that he's quoting back to him. So Jesus declines the temptation, the third temptation as well, right? Stay strong, stays focused. So three temptations, three times that Jesus, even though he's weak, right? Like physically weak at that moment, he doesn't give in to those temptations. What happens next? Did you, did you catch it? Satan leaves him, right? Satan steps back, and I'd encourage you to remember, we've talked about this the last couple of weeks as well. What, it, what does 1 Peter chapter 5 say? It's kind of the, the verse that we've been camping out on these first couple of weeks. What does it say that we're supposed to do? When, we have, when we're encountered with evil, with Satan, with demonic things, what, what do we do? Resist right? Resist. Resist and stand firm in the face. faith. That's what 1 Peter 5 says. That's exactly what Jesus did. How about James 4, 7? It says, resist the devil and he will flee from you. What happened? Jesus resisted the devil and the devil fleed from him. Which is kind of cool. I mean, like the stuff that the Bible says, Jesus, Jesus is the word made flesh. Like the stuff that the Bible says, he did. He lived out, Right? And so the devil fleed from him, and then it says the angels came and cared for him. And so as, as you read that, like there's so much that we could dig into each of those. You know, the first one, the temptation would turn the, turn the bread, in, I'm sorry, the stone into bread. And like we could dig into that a lot. We could talk about how Satan looks to strike us when we're weak, right? We could dig into that. We could talk about the second one. Then we can talk about, you know, the, the, how Satan tries to distract us by, by causing us to question God. Because that's what he did with, with Jesus. And I, just jump. You know, he said, he said that he'll protect you, that he'll keep your foot from, you know, hitting a stone like his angels will protect you. Do you really trust God? We could dig into that. We could talk about the last one. We could talk about how he like tries to distract him and tempt him by giving him everything. You know, you can have honor and power and majesty and all these things without the suffering. Because Jesus knew the suffering was coming right? So we could dig into that. It's actually not where I want to go with this. That's, that's a sermon another time, right? Where I want to go with this is I want to take, I want to zoom out a little bit, and I want to have like the 30,000 foot view of what's happening here. How is Satan working in Jesus's life in this? Like what, what is his method? What is he doing? Here's how I challenge you. Distraction. Distraction right? Because what's happening here? Jesus came and Jesus has a mission, right? Jesus came because God has sent him here. He is on mission from the Father. And part of going out into the desert, we said, who sent him? Who does the Bible say sent him out into the desert? The Holy Spirit, right? So it's part of his mission. And so he has this, this spiritually focused time for 40 days with God, and then when he's like physically weak, what happens? Satan strikes. What is he doing with all of these? Man, he's distracting him. Jesus is focused spiritually, spiritual time with his father. And Satan comes and he's like, aren't you hungry? 40 days, man, that's long. You must be hungry. You're the son of God. Why don't you take that, those stones, just turn them into bread? Right? Distract him from what he's trying to do. Focus, from the spiritual focus, focus on the physical. What else is he doing? 
You're strong in the faith. Yeah? Jump. If you're really strong, if you really believe, God says he's going to save you. You really think God's trust, when it's life or death, Jesus, you think the Father's trustworthy? Right? What else is he doing? You want power? You want influence? You want riches? You want all of that? Just worship me. I'll give it all to you. No suffering. You have a mission, but I want to distract you from the mission. Right? That's what he's doing. What's, so what's Jesus' mission? Like when we read this, what's the reason that Jesus came? Well, he came to live, to live a perfect life, to show us how to live, but then also to lay his life down, to suffer and die, taking the punishment that we deserve, going to the cross, taking the punishment that we deserve so we could experience peace with God so that we could experience a relationship with God forever and ever and ever. Like that's the mission that he was on. He goes out in the desert to kind of begin the formal part, the public part of his mission. And what does Satan look to do? Well, he looks to distract him with three temptations. And guys, listen, he does the same thing with us too. He does the same thing with us too. So you and I have a mission too. Right? It's not, like, not just Jesus who has a mission. We have a mission too. Our mission is slightly different than his mission. He came to live, show us how to live, die, right? To make a way for us to have a relationship. Our mission is to have that relationship with God. If you sit here this morning as a Christian, this is the mission. You're on mission from God. It sounds like a Blues Brothers movie. You have a mission from God. You're on a mission from God. And your mission is to love God with everything that you have. Right? to cultivate that relationship with his son, with Jesus. And then that's not all the mission. What's the rest of the mission? To go out and tell people about this God. We, we say it this way, to live, we live to make Jesus make sense. There's so much confusion on who Jesus is, right? Part of our mission is to help clarify that. If you're a Christian this morning, that's part of our mission is to clarify that, to help people understand like the hope that we could have when we say yes to Jesus. And here's the thing. We have a zillion distractions in our lives as well. Jesus goes out to the desert and it's like distraction, distraction, distraction. We have so many distractions in our lives too. Our enemy, who's also Jesus's enemy, looks to distract us from the mission that we're on too. Here's a question I'd love for you to think about. I'm going to ask it to you again later. What does distraction look like in your life? What does distraction look like in your life? Because it, it looks different for each of us, right? What does it look like in your life? A lot of times, here, I, I will challenge you with this. A lot of times when we think of what are the ways that Satan, the spiritual forces of evil, look to distract us in this life, we automatically begin to think of uh, sinful things, right? Or evil things, or just bad things. Like, he's Satan, he's the father of lies, he's the father of evil, right? And so the ways that he would look to distract us and tempt us must be rotten things. 
And maybe we read the book of Job, right? If you're familiar with the book of Job, Job has all of these terrible things happen to him. Those are distractions. Those are temptations of the devil, right? And so maybe we would step back and we go, well, when I think of distractions from the devil, I think of evil. I think of sickness, you know, like maybe he's bringing sickness into my life. I think of sinful things like pornography or gossip or stealing or lying or cheating or whatever it is. Like those are the things that automatically come to our mind. But let me challenge you. That is not the only, those are true. Satan uses those things. But that is not the only method that Satan uses. There's a book that came out. um, It's a great, it was like a bestseller for a long time. It's a business book. It's written by a guy named Jim Collins. It's called Good to Great. Maybe some of you have read it. It's like 15 years old now, but it's it's a really good book. It's a really interesting book. And so in this book, Collins, is ta- he talks about what separates good organizations from great organizations. And he says, he looks at the kind of the landscape, the business landscape, and he's like, there's a lot of good companies, there's a lot of good organizations, but there's not many great organizations. And so he does this research into why, like why is that true? And what he found out is that so few companies are great because they're content with being good. Like there's so few great companies, great organizations, because it's a lot easier to just be good, right? And to be content with that. And so this is a great quote. He says, good is the enemy of great. And that is one of the key reasons why we have so little that becomes great. We don't have great schools principally because we have good schools. We don't have great government principally because we have good government. Few people attain great lives in large part because it's just so easy to settle for a good life. I mean, that's true. That's interesting, isn't it? I think that's really true. And I don't think it's just true for companies. I don't think it's just true for organizations, but for people too. Because it's easy for us to settle for good, right? Good's fine, right? Like it's enough. It's not great, but it's good. Like as individuals, we can start to think that way too. And here's the thing. Our enemy knows that, right? Like, he's no dummy. And so what do you think part of his plan is? How about this? Engineer a world. He's called the ruler of this world, right? Engineer a world where there's a whole lot of good things that can distract them from the great thing. Make a world where there's so much good stuff to get involved with that it distracts us from the great thing. Many of the ways that Satan works, he's the father of lies. Many of the ways that he works is to distract us and tempt us with good things, not just sinful things. He uses that too. Not just evil things, he uses that too. Not just bad things, he uses that too. But good things as well. He can use the good too. Remember last week, if you were here last week, um, if you weren't here, this is going to sound very weird, but we talked about Satanism last week. Um, we talked about the seven tenets of Satanism. Um, encourage you to check that out online if you missed it. But in that, it was so interesting because there's so much good in it. At first you read that, if you don't know what it is, you read these seven tenets and you're like, I think I agree with most of it. There's a, there's a lot of truth there. There's a lot of good things that are part of that. And I said, that's how he works. There's a lot of truth, there's a lot of good, and then lie is mixed in. That's how he works. He uses good things as well. He's so smart. 
Like he's brilliant. Because as Christians, we go, well, I know what the bad stuff is. Like this is really clear. God's really clear in here, like what's bad, what's wrong, right? He's, I, I, I'm going to stay away from those things. I'm going to stay away from sin. You know, I'm not going to engage in adultery. That would be terrible. I'm not going to, you know, uh, gossip. I'm not going to steal. I'm not going to do all that stuff. Satan's not going to have a hold in my life. No way. But then we have all of these good things in our lives that are an incredible distraction from the great thing. Right? Like we have all of this good stuff in our life that on their own, there's nothing wrong with them. If they're in their proper place, there's nothing wrong with them at all. But we just clutter, clutter, clutter our lives. And the next thing you know, we are focused on all of this good stuff and we neglect spending time in our relationship with our, we run empty in our relationship with our Father. And Jesus becomes somebody that we used to know. He becomes an old friend that we used to spend time with. That's one of the ways that Satan works in our lives. Distraction. When, when we travel, when we go on road trips as a family, so I have, I have two kids. Uh, go, go to that next picture. I have two kids. This is my son, Luke. He's 11. This is my daughter, Natalie. When we go on road trips and I look in the rearview mirror, this is usually what I see. Natalie's sleeping for most of the time and Luke is playing on an electronic device. So when we go on road trips, I like to drive places, right? So, so say like we go down to Florida. Um, when we go on trips, my goal, God bless Marsha, she allows me to be me. She's like the best wife ever. My goal is to get down there as quickly as possible, right? As quickly and efficiently as possible. Like that, that's what I want to do. And so, you know, admittedly, I drive kind of fast when, when we go safely, but I drive kind of fast. Um, we take minimal breaks when we go, right? So like when we go to a restaurant, like if we have to eat something, um, we most of the time pack food that we just eat on the way. Or if we run out of food and we have to stop at a restaurant, it's always the drive-through so that you can get it quickly to go. And so I'm driving, I'm eating a hamburger. Like this is just kind of how we travel. Um, because I'm focused on getting to the destination quickly. Like that's, that's what I want to do. So one of the things when you travel, a necessary evil that slows things down is you have to get gas, right? Otherwise you don't get very far. And so when we look to get gas in the car, um, I want it. so I always wait until, you know, we're like at least below a quarter of a tank, or maybe an eighth of a tank, uh, depending on how populated the area is that we're in, because that just slows you down if you get gas too much. And so before we get to, you know, the travel plaza or whatever to get gas, we're a few miles out. I'm like preparing the family, you know? I'm like, all right, kiddos, here we go. Get your shoes on, get your coats on. We're going to be there soon. We got to be quick. We got to be efficient as we do this, right? And so we pull into the travel plaza. I put it in park and it's like you run into, it's like a NASCAR pit stop, you know? The doors fly open. Everybody runs out to the bathroom. You kind of do your thing. I usually get done first and I go right out and I fill it up with gas because you have to have gas, right, in order to travel places. And so that's like, that's how we travel, right? And I think about that and I think, man, isn't it sometimes our spiritual life just like that? Like we know we need gas, right? Like we know we need to fill up our tanks in order to travel. And, but man, how many times do we go, I want to make it as far as I can or I do that because I'm distracted, I have a purpose, I have a focus, I have a goal, and I'm really focused on that. But I know I need, I'm a Christian, I know I need to like have my spiritual tank filled up too. And so we go and we wait as long as we can. 
And we go and we fill up our tank and as we do it, we're trying to be quick and efficient and check things off the list so that we could get back in our car and get to our destination where our focus is, right? Or how about this? And that's, and that's dangerous. That's dangerous. As we're talking about the enemy and how he looks to distract us, that's dangerous. Or how about this? You ever um, run out of gas when you're driving? Don't raise your hand. It's really embarrassing. I, I, have, I, I don't think that I have ever run out of gas, but I've come really, really close. And here's the thing. Like, if you run out of gas or you get close, it's not that you don't know that you need gas, right? Like you know that you need gas in your car. Like you look at the, I, I look at the gauge and it's really low, but I think I got more time, you know? Like I still got 20, I think I still got 20 miles I could drive before it's going to peter out, you know? And so you wait and you wait and you wait. And then the next thing you know, you're stuck, right? Guys, it's the same thing. How many times does that sort of thing happen in our spiritual lives as well? We're like, man, I know I need to have my spiritual tank filled, but I got all these things that are vying for my attention, you know? I got to do this. I got to take the kids to this place. I got I to, you know, do this thing for work. This person needs my help, and I've got all of this stuff, and I put it off, and I put it off, and I put it off, and the next thing you know, we're running on fumes, spiritually speaking, or else we shut down completely and we collapse under the stresses of life, just completely overwhelmed with life because we've never filled our spiritual tanks. And, and I'll tell you what, as I've counseled a lot of people, I'll tell you what often happens in those situations. Who do we blame for that? Like when we're like, I'm at the end of my rope, I'm struggling, who do we blame? God, right? And we're like, God, why do you allow me to get to this point? Why do you allow this to happen? Why all this stuff going on in my life? But we never choose to fill our tanks with him. Or how about this? How many accidents are caused by distracted drivers? Lots, right? Maybe texting and driving is the biggest culprit of that. Why is that so dangerous? Well, because when we're texting, we have to like look down at our phones, right? And if I'm looking down, I'm focused at this thing in my hand and I'm driving, I'm not looking up, right? And so what happens? Well, maybe somebody pulls out in front of us and by the time we look up, it's too late and we plow right into it, right? Bam, we plow, plow right into it. But if we weren't looking down at our phone, if we weren't distracted, when that thing came into our path, we would go, most of the time, we could recognize it and we can step on the brake or we could swerve, we could avoid smacking into it, right? How many times does that sort of thing happen in our spiritual lives as well? Like we're distracted by, you know, whatever it is that we're distracted by. You know, all this stuff, all this good stuff going on in our lives. And then what happens? Temptation comes into our life. That's how the enemy often works. When we're weak, he often strikes, right? He has set up a system that temptation comes. It comes regularly. And so I'm, I'm weak, I'm distracted, temptation comes in my life, and it can look very different depending on kind of who you are and where you're at in life. If you're a student, maybe the temptation is, you know, somebody, somebody got the answer to the test, and it's a really hard test, and they gave them to me, and I could take them, and I could use it, and no one would ever find out. Temptation, right? Or maybe we go, uh, we start to look at um, a, a coworker who seems to really understand us, you know, better than our husband does. And we start thinking, hmm, I wonder what life could be like. Or, or the cute girl at the bank is 
real flirty with us. And she looks at us a certain way and we're like, hmm, that's like what my wife used to look at me with. She used to look at me that way. Doesn't anymore. We think, hmm, wonder what life could be like. Or somebody tells us about a way, money's tight, somebody tells us about a way to cheat on our taxes that the IRS never audits. Like you could almost for sure get away with it. It's going to save you money. And we're like, hmm, it's interesting. And, and, you know, if we weren't distracted by whatever it is that we're distracted by, if we were strong and focused on the great, on our relationship with God, on our mission from God, then when we look at those things, they wouldn't even be a temptation. You're like, that, that, no, no, I'm not even interested in that. But when we're distracted by something else, something comes in our path and we're like, bam, we plow headfirst into it. I, I think about this regularly because I think it's healthy for us to think about. I am one bad decision away from catastrophe in my life. Like I stand up here as a pastor and, you know, such a spiritual person and I'm one bad decision away. I can make one bad decision and my life could be fundamentally changed forever. And so could yours. The stakes are high. And we have an enemy who hates us, who's looking to grab our attention, shape our reality, and pull us away from the God that loves us. I'll ask you again, what does distraction look like in your life? And, and, and I'll be honest with you, I think it looks very different depending on where we're at in life. Distraction looks different if you're a student than if you're a retiree. Distraction looks different if you're single or if you have, you're married, right? Distraction looks different if you have five kids as opposed to no kids. But what does it look like in your life? I, I was going to do a whole week on busyness, like a whole sermon, just a sermon on busyness. Because I think there's a lot of us that would say, if, if there was one word to describe our lives, it would be busy busy. I got so much stuff going on in my life and it's all good. Lots of good stuff. Yeah, bad stuff comes here and there, but man, I know, you know, and I, I try to stay away from that, but I got lots of good stuff, but it keeps me away from the great, right? And, you know, maybe you sit here this morning and you're like, wow, yeah, uh, I feel distracted now that you're talking about it. I feel very distracted in my life, if I'm honest. And there's lots of really good things, but I don't prioritize the great thing. I don't prioritize my relationship with God, my mission from God. Can I, can I encourage you this way? There's lots of people in this book, there's lots of other people that did the same thing, that struggled. Like this book is filled with real people, right? Like this is part of the human struggle. We struggle with being distracted away from the mission that God has given us. And so you look at a guy like Solomon in the Bible, right? Solomon was uh, called the wisest man who ever lived. He was somebody, you read the beginning of his life, and he had a t very tight relationship with God. And then he gets distracted with building campaigns, with like um, a, a weird focus on learning, excessive learning. He gets distracted by women who don't love God. And the next thing you know, He's pulled away from God. It's actually a very sad story. You read about the end of Solomon's life and you look at his relationship with God and it's like he doesn't seem anywhere near God. He's distracted. You look at David, King David, his father. He's called the greatest king in the history of Israel. A guy who was a man after God's own heart. And you look at his life and you're like, he was distracted. He became distracted by success. He became, he kind of lost focus. And what did he do? He committed adultery and then to cover it up, he committed murder. 
And then he got more distracted and he became prideful and arrogant. And he had this census. He wanted to see how big his army was. He wanted to see how big his kingdom was. And he has a census that ends up, it was very upsetting to God. And it ends up many people in his nation lost their lives because of him, right? Because he became distracted, pulled him away from God. I'll tell you what's an interesting, I was going to dig into this this week too, it, you know, on time, but uh, in Luke chapter 10, there's a family. It's actually chapter 10 specifically, two sisters, Mary and Martha. They have a brother too, a guy named Lazarus. And Jesus is very good friends with this family. In fact, Lazarus dies and Jesus raises him from the dead. I mean, it's just amazing. But in cha- Luke chapter 10, Jesus is going to their house. He has sort of this unexpected, he's going to drop in. Jesus is going to drop in for dinner. And so Martha, maybe understandably, is like freaking out a little bit. She's like, I got to get everything ready for Jesus. Jesus is coming, right? And so she's doing all this. She's doing all this. And then Jesus gets there. And Mary, her sister, goes and just sits at Jesus' feet and listens to him and spends time with him. And Mary's, or Martha's like, what is wrong with you? Jesus, tell her to get up and do something. There's so much stuff that still needs to be done. And Jesus is like, no, no, no. She made the better choice. I'm not going to take it away from her. Martha, you're distracted. Literally, it uses those words. You're distracted. She's doing what she should do. She, you're doing the good. She's focused on the great, Right? Guys, listen, if we can begin to recognize the ways in which the enemy looks to distract us in this life, I want to ask you a second question. I want to kind of wrap things together here with the second question. Here's the question. What does growing in your relationship with God look like? Like if we talk about distraction, we have an enemy is looking to distract us, right? Okay, I want to recognize what those distractions are and I want to not give in to them. However, I want to lean into my relationship. I want to lean into the great my relationship with God, my mission with God. What does it look like for you to grow in your relationship with God? And I encourage you not to answer that question too quickly. Because if you've been a church person for a long time, you could give the quick pat answer and you go, well, I spend time in this and I spend time praying. That's what I do. I do my devotions. It's a real Christian, real Christian term. I do my devotions. I get up in the morning and I read my Bible and then I pray and that's what I do. And great. Like if that's you, great. If that's the best way that you connect with God, that you grow in your relationship with God, that's awesome. That's wonderful. Certainly time in his word and time talking and listening to him is essential. However, it doesn't look the same for everybody. Do you know how many people, many times it's men that I've had come to me and say, I just, I'm not a good reader. I don't read well. I struggle to read. I struggle to comprehend and focus on what I read. And so I don't read the Bible. I've had so many people, mostly men, that have said that to me over the years. Maybe for you, like reading is not the best thing. But we know that it's essential to like get God's word, to understand what he says so that we get to know him. And so maybe for you, listening to the Bible's better. You know, almost every Bible app on our smartphones has a little listening feature. And usually the person reading the Bible does it in a dramatic way that's like really good. Like it sucks you into it. Maybe for you, like we know that time of the word is important. Maybe for you, listening to it is better. I have a bunch of other people. In fact, I had um, a few last night after service say to me, um, listen, when I like sit down to pray or I lay down to pray or I kneel to pray, I almost always fall asleep. I, I just, I don't know what it is. I do it at night, you know, before I go to bed and I always fall asleep when I do it. Okay, 
Well, we know prayer is important. Maybe for you, you should be moving around while you pray. Like maybe walking, doing prayer walks is better for you. I, I had a friend who, um, I, am not, I do not connect with this, but for him, the best time that he would spend with God a, a, any day was when he was running. You know, something about like beating your body into submission. I was like, he connected with God. For me, when I'm running, all I can think about is the end of the run. For him, like he wanted to connect with God during the run. Like that was his best time with the Lord. And it's like, cool. You, you figured it out. Good. For me, I a lot of times go to Silver Creek and I walk. There's something special about being out in nature, you know, and like seeing the beauty and talking to God that way. And I don't fall asleep. It keeps me wide awake, right? Maybe for you, fasting is a big deal. We just read about Jesus fasting for 40 days. That's a long fast. It doesn't have to be 40 days. But maybe for you, fasting and prayer is a big thing. Denying your body physically so that you could focus spiritually. Maybe that's the best way for you to connect. Maybe you're like John or like David. And, and the best way for you to grow in your relationship with God is when you grab your guitar and you play a song or you go behind the piano and you play a song and you worship him that way. Like maybe for you that's the best, the best way, but he, I challenge you. Like for you, everybody's different. For you, what is the best way that you grow in your relationship with God? Listen, I, I want, let me end by just challenging you. A, a sober challenge. If you end uh, most of your days, and, and if you're honest, you're like, I probably spent one or two minutes talking listening to or even thinking about God today. Like if, if most days, at the end of your day, that's you, and you're a Christian. If you sit here and you say, I'm a, I'm a Christian. If that's you, I would say, something's wrong then. There's something wrong. Because that's not, that's not normal for a Christian. If you, at the end of your day, go, man, I have got so much stuff going on. I feel like I never have time to spend with God. I challenge you, I'd say, something's wrong, then your priorities aren't right. God gives us enough time to do what he wants us to do in the day, right? Like he does. If you end your day and you're like, man, I'm so, like my focus is on everything else other than God almost all day, something's wrong. Maybe we're too distracted, right? Guys, let, let, let me just end with one last question. And I think it's a fundamental question. Who do you want to rule your life? Like, who do you want to rule? If you sit here today and you're a Christian, who do you want to rule your life? If you sit here today and you're not and you're investigating Christianity, you got to answer that question. Who do you want to rule your life? Who do you want to have your attention? Who do you want to shape your reality? Who do you want to follow? In your life? I pray that the answer to each of those questions for each of us is Jesus.